0: Hopefully you can hear me. I'll try and speak up to aid that. Well, I want to take you back to the start. The very first pages of the scriptures where God makes a world that is very good. Everything is right in this world that he has made and it reflects his character and his intent. Humanity's relationship with one another are good and right. Humanity's relationship with themselves are good and right. Humanity's relationship with God is good and right. God creates Adam and Eve. And he doesn't just create them to do their own thing in this lovely little garden. No, he creates them with a purpose, with a mission. And I think that's something that we all long for. We all long for a purpose in life, to be of some value to know who we are and to and for what we are to do. God gives Adam and Eve a purpose. He says, "Fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply." He's saying to Adam and Eve, "Expand. Expand the borders of Eden so that the whole earth might become a temple, my dwelling place, so that the earth might be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the purpose of humanity's creation. That's what they are to do. And that is indeed their highest pleasure. But Adam and Eve reject that call. They usurp God's authority. They rebel against him. And the consequences of their rebellion are devastating. That placid, beautiful lake of Genesis 1 and 2 becomes this furious storm in Genesis chapter 3. People are feeling for the first time shame. They blame each other. They run away from God. And that peace, tranquility of the garden as God first made it is now replaced with this atmosphere of unease. This tension is in the world. And for Genesis chapter 3, things go from bad to worse. By Genesis chapter 4, we have murder. And by the end of Genesis chapter 4, we have the first serial killer. By the time we get to chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, things are so violent and have gone so far down that God says this about humanity. He says that every thought and intention of a human heart was only evil all the time. It's a world at war. And in some ways, that just makes a lot of sense (coughs) of our world. We have wars today, wars globally, like in Ukraine. We have personal wars, wars within families, brothers and sisters fighting parents against their children. We have wars individually. Many of us know what it is to have a war against our soul, a trouble that's deep within us. By Genesis chapter 11, humanity has the gall to attempt to build a tower up to heaven, to take over. And it all comes back to Adam and Eve's rebellion in Genesis chapter 3, that that what seems like just a drop in the ocean in Genesis chapter 3 has become a tsunami by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11. And humanity is in this moral freefall. It's like they're out of control. It's like they're unrestrained. And it's against that backdrop of rebellion and moral chaos that we come to those words that were read by Liz from Genesis chapter 12. There, if you want to open up to Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, He says to him, go, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. It's against this backdrop. God comes and, if you like, catches Abraham in the middle of this moral freefall and he says to Abraham, I'm going to establish a relationship with you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you a name. And you've got to ask, as lovely as that is for Abraham, perhaps as special as he might have felt as God gives those words to him, what about the rest of the world, this world that is in moral freefall? Has God chosen Abraham at the expense of the rest of the world? Has he left the world to its own devices to disaster and destruction? Well, we see the answer to that question in verse 2. Have a look there in verse 2. Because God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse." And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Why does Abraham choose sorry, why does God choose Abraham? It chooses Abraham there at the end of verse three, so that through his descendants, they might be a conduit, they might be a channel of salvation to the whole world, to all the peoples. On earth, verse 3. Abraham and his family are to be the means of worldwide salvation. And in the book of Genesis, over the next 16 chapters, no less than four times, God will repeat this purpose and this call upon Abraham's life. He's been called. He's been blessed. But it's not a blessing for himself. It's a blessing for others. So how is God going to do it? Well, we're going to see this morning that God, um, really, in this section, we see four things at work. We're going to see that God uses a people, firstly, for mission. And this mission occurs within a place. And there is a particular path. And ultimately, we're going to see this mission is through a person. So there's a people place, a path, and ultimately a person. So firstly, a people. God says first that I will make you into a great nation. And this always has bewildered me. Um, you know, what, what does a nation have to do with Abraham at this stage? God says that, Abraham, you're going to have a child And that child will have children, and those children will have children. And if you were to look up in the sky, there's as many stars as you can see. That's how many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren you're going to have. You're not just going to be a family or a tribe. You're going to be a whole collection of tribes, a nation. Because a nation is important here. A nation is not just a collection of lots of individuals. It's not just a factor of size. When we think of nation, we think, you know, big enough. But there are some pretty small nations in Europe. Um, A nation is not a nation simply by size. A nation is a nation because it has its own culture. A nation is a cultural force. Now, uh, when you think, I'm going to ask you, uh, when you think of fine food, what country do you think of? Right, right, France, Paris, something in another language that sounds French. Right, so when you think of, when you think of food often, and perhaps it's just the way we've been condi- conditioned as Western people, when we think of fine food, Um, we think of France. Uh, That movie Ratatouille is all about food. It's a great movie. When you think of a country, you you know, often don't think of a person. You think about what a country is like. I had um, dinner with an older French lady a couple of months ago. And when you you go into an older French lady's kitchen at 8pm at night, You don't escape that kitchen without having dinner. Even if you've uh, said you've had dinner and you're going to have dinner and you're full, you you just don't, don't escape a French lady's kitchen without having dinner at night. A nation is a cultural force. And so when God says, you're going to become a great nation, he's not just saying you're going to be really big. That is true. But he's saying you are going to be a cultural force. There's got to be something distinctive about the collection of all these individuals and the collection of all these individuals is going to affect the nations around them, the nation of Israel. The descendants of Abraham are to be the conduits of God's blessing. Abraham is blessed so that his family might be blessed, so that the nations might be blessed. Here in Genesis chapter 12, this is Israel's origin story. And there are three little words that are crucial to understand this origin story. They're there in verse 2. And they're repeated twice. And we often miss them. Those three little words are, I will make. I will make, God says. In verse 4, we're told that Abraham was 75 when he received the promise. By the time he had his first child, he's 100. His wife, Sarah, isn't much younger. And this means by which this people come into existence, that this cultural force is brought into the world, this, the means by which this nation is brought into being is by no worldly means. It's by no normal means. They come into being through the miraculous power of God. Because God says, I will make. I will make him into a nation. Abraham's people are a people who, who are created by the unexpected supernatural work of God. And that's the way it was back then. But that's also the way it is today. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes in verse 29, if you belong to Christ, if you are a Christian, you are one of Abraham's offspring. You are caught up in that nation. How? How are Abraham's people created? Well, through the miraculous power of God. Not by human will, nor by a husband's decision. And that means something. It meant something for Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 12, that their child Isaac was brought through the supernatural, powerful work of God. And it means something to us this morning, because the chances, the chances of you being Christian, the chances of I being Christian are the same as Sarah conceiving. <coughs> it's the miraculous power of God. That's how I'm a Christian. The miraculous power of God. That's how you're a Christian. The miraculous power of God. You have been given what the New Testament calls new birth. <coughs> and you had as about as much to do with that new birth as you did your first birth. See, we are not a people... We, sorry, we are a people as a church, who have been created by God. Miraculously. We've been saved in the gospel of Lord Jesus. We've been gathered by that same gospel. We've been created by God and we're also sustained by God. That miraculous power that brought about the birth of Isaac, that's at work in us, in God's spirit, to gather us. See, In many ways, Isaac shouldn't have been born except for the miraculous power of God. And in many ways, we as a church should not exist. When we first started, we didn't have the money. We didn't have the critical mass. We didn't have ascending church. And yet here we are. Here we are as a church. We've been created by God through his miraculous power. And that same miraculous power that's created us, sustains us, keeps us going, that miraculous grace and power of God. Why do we exist as a church? We exist because we have been blessed. And if we're being blessed, we're to be a blessing to others. We exist for God's plan of salvation, to be a redemptive force in the world by his grace. Old Testament theologian Christopher J Wright says it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world mission was not made for the church the church was made for mission we've been created for a purpose we've been created and being in in being created that's a blessing but it's not a blessing just for us it's a blessing for the nations around us we've been created for the purpose of being a blessing through the gospel of jesus to the nations and as remarkable and as powerful as that is that same work of creation god in, in creation god is at work in sustaining us if you were to ask people what is the church Um, Many people might say, well, you know, it's a kind of bit of a social thing that you guys do on a Sunday, and you might get some nice kind of um, ideas and thoughts about how to think positively in the world. But first and foremost, what this section of the Bible reminds us is the church is not a place where, but it's people who people who have been called out by God and blessed by him so that we might be a blessing to the world. And that means that church is less like going to a movie and more like going to a change room at half time. When you go to a movie, we went to a movie on Monday, and uh, it's a little odd going uh, in the middle of the day. There's not that many people there. And you do wonder, like there's a couple of people just by themselves. And um, I have got nothing wrong with people going to the movies by themselves. But it makes me curious. Why? Why do you want to go to the movies by yourself? And what's going on for that person? But you don't ask, do you? It's a bit, in fact, a bit odd. Um, you go to the movie, you enjoy it, and then you know whether the person next to you or around you enjoys it. It's of no issue for you. But church is not like that. Church is not simply a show that we kind of attend and you know we might be mildly entertained or not it's more like a change room it's more like a change room at half time i don't know if you watch some sport but uh, you know nrl these days has the cameras in the change rooms and in fact uh, one nrl player the other day has been suspended because he was smoking or vaping during half time
1: and, and why
0: why was why he in big trouble because he you know half time is an important time it's not the time to go out the toilets and smoke. It's a time to get around the players. He was a player, he wasn't playing that particular day. But it's a time to encourage one another. To encourage one another to keep going. And that's why the church is less like a movie and more like halftime in a change room. Change rooms aren't particularly good smelling places. They're uh, often pretty dirty. And for us to gather here this morning. We gather here to encourage one another, to encourage one another to keep going because we need that encouragement. And so church is not a place where, but a people who. We've been blessed just as Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to others. We've been blessed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So firstly, there is a people who are blessed. Secondly, there is a place For God's mission. We see that in verse 1. Have a look there in verse 1. God's quite clear. He says to Abraham, Go to the land. And in verse 5, we find out that this land is the land of Canaan. Verse 7, God says, I will give you this land. Well, why this land? You know, out of all the lands that God could have given the people of God, why does He give them Canaan? Well, if you know your Bible a little bit, you'll know that Canaan is a good place to be. It's a land that we're told that is flowing with milk and honey. But it's a land that's flowing with milk and honey when you're in the desert. It was probably not the most fertile farming land in the ancient Near East. It was probably not the most productive of lands. It was probably not the best positioned of lands. So, why does God send his people to Canaan? Well, Israel in the ancient world, as they came into the land of Canaan, were like well they were like central station above them were the massive empires of Syria and Assyria below them were the Egyptians and so for God to be placing his people in Canaan between Assyria and Syria and Egypt. There they were at the crossroads, the crossroads of Europe, Africa and Asia. All roads went through Canaan. And in other words, this was a perfect place to be a blessing to all those nations who were moving past and through this central station of the ancient world. It was a strategic location. God gave them a particular place for a purpose. And just as God has gathered us, he has gathered us here in this place. And this place is no accident in the providence of God. This place that God gathers us here this morning is strategic. We're 300 metres from Mortlake Primary School. We're 700 metres from Breakfast Point. And God has given us this place for his purpose. He's given us this building. He's given us this place because we've been put here to be in the middle of everything in our community, to be a cultural force, a cultural force of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now Wendy's just gone out for Christ, but she was walking past a number of years ago, our church, thinking about, should she go? She lives just up the road. And God called her to this place. And God called her to himself. And so God has put us in this place. And he's given us a purpose in this place. To be a blessing to others. And thirdly, we see in this passage that God gives not just a people, a place, but he also gives a path. Because how are we going to get there? Well, God says... Abraham there in chapter 12 he says go and where where is Abraham to go well Abraham didn't know in verse 1 where he was going or how to get there but he is to go in verse 1 from what well we're told from country, kindred and father's house and do you know what that is that's comfort that's home, that's safety, that's what's known. But God says, "Go from those places." And the author of Hebrews picks this up in our second reading, and he says, "What's going on here is Abraham is trusting God even when he doesn't know what's going on." By faith, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to the place. Why is it by faith? Because he didn't know where he was going and he didn't know how he was going to get there. But by faith, he obeyed. And what enabled Abraham to be an agent of God's blessing? What well, was faith and obedience? And that has always been the way. And God has given us a path. And it's a path of faith and obedience. God is committed to bless the nations, but here's the catch, if you like. He's also committed to a means. He's committed to do it, not through fantastic, ideal people out there. He's committed to do it through ordinary, normal people like you and me, why? Because he cares so much about us, so much that he's not willing to bypass our involvement in seeing his plan to save the nations. And so in order for us to follow his path, we're we're going to have to do what Abraham did. Trust and obey. And that's uncomfortable. That's hard. That doesn't always make us feel safe. There is risk in going and in leaving what is safe and familiar. When we uh, were trying to start breakout um, earlier last term, I've got to admit, I I was very nervous about how it would go. And I was worried. I was worried it it would just flop and fail. I was worried about what you might think. I was worried about what others think. But... God's blessed what we've been doing. But it's a risk. And there's always a risk of failure. But to trust and obey, it always has a risk. And so we've got to wrestle with trying things that don't work. And we've got to ask ourselves as we try things, will we trust and cling to God and to his gospel, even if he gives us faith? Will we still know that we're loved? Will we still know that we're to be a blessing to others, even if things don't go the way we want them to? Will we still step out in faith? Failure does not mean defeat. And God often stretches us when we take those risks, when we're not sure if things will work out, when there is doubt, but when we trust him, but he wants his gospel to go to the nations. And if he wants his gospel to go to the nations, he'll use us. Not ideal people out there. Us. Feeble, weak, ordinary as we are. And finally, we see that God uses a person. God will repeat these promises to Abraham throughout his life. And as he does, he will say to Abraham, I I will give you an offspring. And the word in the original is ambiguous as it is in English. Because if I was to ask you about your offspring, well, you could have just one offspring. Or you could have ten offspring. And so is offspring singular? Or is it plural? Most people think when they're reading uh, Genesis that it's plural. Like in Genesis chapter 24, God says that your offspring will be like the sands on the seashore. That's clearly plural. But He also says in Genesis chapter 24, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. It's singular. And so throughout these promises we are given hints that God is not only going to bless the nations through a people collectively, but God is going to save and bless the world through a particular person, singularly, a descendant of Abraham, one who would possess the gate of his enemies. And Jews picked up on this language. They picked up on the singular language in the book of Genesis. And they concluded that this person must be a king because in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, God says, Kings will come from you, Abraham. Abram, then. And in Psalm 72, we read that they will see that this king will be one of David's descendants. Give the nations to your royal son. <coughs> And this king, this Messiah that God was going to use to bless the world is going to be one of Abraham's descendants. The book of Matthew, son of Abraham, son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Lord is going to be sent into this world at just the right time, in just the right place, in the fullness of time, born of woman, born under the law, and he's going to lead an obedient life and he is going to tread that path of faith and obedience to the point of giving himself over to death trusting just like Abraham did with Isaac that God can raise the dead and he is going to give to his father the nations why is it that you and I can be saved because God has blessed us in the gospel and the blessing of the gospel is not that you have trusted, as important as that is, but the blessing of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus has trusted. He has obeyed perfectly. And when we trust in him, it's his obedience that is placed before the Father, the Father who delivered him from death and raised him up so that we might be blessed, so that we can be a blessing to others. And he's with us as we go. He's in this place, at this time, on this path, for the sake of the nations. Amen. Please stand as we sing.